This morning, I want to bring a, a message to you. <clears throat> that is uh, entitled, God's People Living in God's Kingdom. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 24 through chapter 5, verse 2. It's a large, large paragraph of Scripture to cover. You'll see, I hope, by the end why I'm covering it in this order. Um, the reason is, is this paragraph, if cut away from the whole, will end up teaching the opposite of what the writer intends. I'm afraid that, although others who are more skillful might could cut this into little bitty pieces and deal with each of these moral imperatives in a way that doesn't destroy the integrity of the passage, I think it's safer for me if I just cover the whole of the passage together. That's going to require several things. One of those is that we move kind of quickly through this and that I summarize the passage for you. And also the intent of the passage. What was the Apostle Paul intending to communicate? That's the question we have to ask. It doesn't matter what I want him to communicate. It doesn't matter really what others say he's communicating. What we need to know is what did Paul want his readers in Ephesus, and then after them, the church at large, universal, the Holy Spirit, what message was intended for the church by God through the Apostle Paul? That's the question when we come to Scripture. And I think that it's helpful if we turn our minds to an Old Testament passage. I don't want you to flip there. I'm going to place it on the screen. It's a long passage, okay? I'm convinced that the context of Ephesians, the, the meat around Ephesians 4, 25, 4 through 5, 2, is Zechariah chapter 8. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul quotes Zechariah chapter 8 when he tells them in verse 25 to no longer speak untruthfully with one another. That's an exact quote from Zechariah chapter 8. Now I want us to look. I've placed it on the screen for you so that you can follow while I'm reading. I'm just going to read it. I'm not going to make a lot of comment while I'm reading. Listen to this. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I'm jealous for Zion with great jealousy. And I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem. Talking about the peace of Jerusalem. It's so peaceful the old people will sit outside. And then each with staff in hand, because of great age, they're going to live a long life again. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts? Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people, listen, from the east country and from the west country. And I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, Let your hands be strong, you who in the days, these days have been hearing these words from, my, from the mouth of the prophets, who were present on the day that the foundations of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. For before those days there was no wage for man or any wage for beast. Neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in. For I set every man against his neighbor. But now I will not deal with the, with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their dew, and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah, and, and house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, As I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. These are the things that you shall do. Here's the quote that Paul uses in the middle of this great chapter. He takes these words and uses them in Ephesians 4.25 to give us our context. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feast. Therefore, love truth and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you. For we have heard that God is with you. Now you ask, why would you read Zechariah chapter 8 before you preach a New Testament sermon on Ephesians chapter 4? What's the point? I believe the church, the people of God, by God's grace, have entered into the age of Zechariah chapter 8. We are seeing God bring about His promise to His people through His great prophets. How would I get there? Is it an illogical jump? No. Take your Bible, holding your place in Ephesians, and turn to Matthew chapter 5. We read a portion of it. It's interesting to me that Matthew chapter 5 finds its context in Zechariah chapter 8. 
Jesus, too, had on his mind the promise of God that the people of Israel would one day re-inhabit Jerusalem, and Jerusalem would then be a holy mountain where all the nations would come and grab hold of the robe of a Jew and say, let us go with you, for we have heard God is with you. Jesus says, he opened his mouth, in verse 2, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus' intent was to fulfill the words of the Old Testament every point. And every, jit, every tittle, every iota or every dot. That's a Hebrew way of talking about the alphabet. In the Semitic language, there are dots and there are slashes. And those are the way we distinguish the alphabet in the Hebrew. So when Jesus says that not one iota, not one dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished... It's very meaningful. I'm going to do everything God said would happen. I'm going to do it. I'm going to fulfill it. Not a group of people. Not a nation of people. Me. And then he says, if your righteousness doesn't exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, the representatives of the Jewish people of his day, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's because you can't grab hold of the garment of a Pharisee and find God. You must grab hold of the garment of Jesus Christ, for God is with him. Zechariah 8 is a literal prophecy of the life of Jesus Christ, the establishment of the church, where all nations shall come in under the greatest Jew to ever walk the face of the earth. They will grab his, the hem of his garment, and they will be saved. They will be brought into a city that is set on a hill that cannot be hidden. They will be brought in as a light unto the Gentiles where ten from every tribe and every tongue and every nation shall come, also joining the people of God. Do you see it? Ephesians chapter 4 is simply Paul's expansion of this same idea. Now we turn to Ephesians chapter 4. and Jason, you're going to have to advance the screens for me. In Ephesians chapter 4, we come to this 
And, and here, here's the outline, the broad outline. God's people in God's image. Now, if we look at verse 24, it says, And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, as we look at this passage, we have to keep in mind, and this is why I'm preaching the whole text for you, we have to keep in mind that what Paul is saying here is not, is not, obey verses 25 through 32 in chapter 4, and God will love you, and God will save you. In other words, this is not a way of salvation. Tell the truth. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. This is not a way to save yourself. Work hard and have plenty left over so you can share with others. Put away anger and malice and wrath from you. Don't even let it be named among you. But rather, be kind to one another, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is not a way for you to save yourself. This is the way it's often preached. When we come to passages like Ephesians chapter 4, in, in common vernacular in the church these days, what people are saying is, buck up and work harder. If you do, then God will love you. If you obey God, then He will love you. If you disobey God, He won't love you. That's not at all what Paul is doing here. That's why I read for you Zechariah chapter 8. Who in Zechariah chapter 8 is going to save the people? Who? The people? Who? Who? God, the Lord. The Lord of hosts will save them. The Lord of hosts will create the new Jerusalem. The Lord of hosts will set them on a mountain so that it can't be hidden and so that there's peace in all of their gates. The Lord of hosts will do that. Not the people of Israel. The Lord will do it. Why did I read Matthew chapter 5? Because Jesus is not thundering from the, from the mountain to His people, do these things and you will be blessed. He's rather saying, the people that have this character are blessed already. Blessed are what? Not those who seek peace, but those who are peacemakers. There's a character that's already in these people. They're not obeying so they're loved. They're already loved, and it's causing obedience. Jesus is not thundering imperatives to His people in the, in, in the discourse. He's not saying, go live like this, and you'll make me happy, and I'll reward you. No, He's saying, I've loved you. I've rewarded you. I've already changed your character. Now, go live in that. There's a big difference there. I'll say something very strong, very straightforward, so nobody misses it. Okay? If you live by all men's terms a good and obedient life without Jesus Christ, you will burn in hell for eternity. Because your life and its righteousness will not exceed that of the Pharisees. Don't kid yourself. Don't deceive yourself, church. If you obey verses 25 through 32 from now till you die perfectly, you will reap the wrath of God unless Christ's righteousness has been credited to you. Unless the Jew who you've grabbed a hold of by the hem of the robe is Jesus Christ and you have admitted to Him 
take us where you are for we know God is with you. The fulfillment of the Old Testament is Jesus Christ. He is the point of the Bible. He is the message of grace. Grace is not a thing, it's a person. Love is not a thing, it's a man, God-man, Jesus Christ. And you'll either have Him and be saved or you'll deny Him and live a great life and be loved by everybody. They'll stand at your funeral and talk about how hard you worked, how giving you were, how loving you were, how, oh, we just loved this brother. He was a good man. How many funerals you been to where that was the punchline of the, uh, of, the, of the funeral? He was a good man. I don't want to have to say that about you when I preach your funeral. I want to be able to say, this is a man captivated by the man of God, Jesus Christ. This is a man identified by the grace of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, the man, Jesus Christ. That's who this man was. He lived a life set on fire by the love of God through Jesus Christ. I don't want to have to say you were a good man. Good men go to hell. Grace men go to heaven. That's what Paul's saying here. Look at verse 24. We are created in God's image as believers. That's what he's saying. You are created, look what it says, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. If you look at the text here, and, and I said this last week, it, it, the, the words are, in a, in a, they are written in such a way that they're neither past nor present nor future tense. They're written in a special class of verbs. The commands are written in a special class of verbs. The infinitive class. Therefore, they can be fit in any of those categories or, last option, and I think biblical option, all of those categories. That was last week's message. You do already have the old man put off and the new man put in. That's justification. It already happened. And... You are daily putting off the ways of the old man and living in the ways of the new man. That's present salvation. And one day God will finally take away all sin and you will have finally put to bed the things of the old life and you will be a new man completely through and through. As, he, as, as Aaron reminded us, not able to sin. That, that, that's our future. We're not able to sin. It's not today. Today we are able to not to sin. We're given the ability to make the decision to live in the image of God. But we still, don't we, still find ourselves beset with sin. Some days you just don't want to live like God. Neither do I. And so, he says right here that we are created in the image of God. You put on the new self in the likeness, do you see it in verse 24? In the likeness of God. In true righteousness and holiness. Not in pharisaical righteousness and holiness. Not in working hard righteousness and holiness. But you are a new man in the true righteousness and holiness. What is that? Why is he calling it true righteousness and holiness? Because it's not something they do. It's something they are because they have Christ. And a new life in Christ. Paul is not thundering, go live a good life. He's saying, you are in the image of God now. You have the image of God. 
you are created as a new believer in the image of God, Christ's likeness. That's you. That's who you are, true righteousness and holiness. That's a beautiful promise, isn't it? Let's just be honest with one another. Aren't you glad He doesn't thunder at us? Go be good? Listen, I would have already failed. I can't even count how many times this morning. Forget a week. This morning, today, knowing I'm coming to preach, you would think I could behave. And I do pretty good on the outside. I'm like a Pharisee in that. I can put on the good face. But that's not true righteousness and holiness. That's external. God cuts through that. And He sees the heart. The question is, do you have a true heart of righteousness and holiness not mustered up from your strength but produced by the life of Jesus Christ in you we as believers are in the image of God we also are to live in God's character as believers look at verse 1 of chapter 5 therefore I know I skipped all those things we're going to get there you think I'm scared of that don't you because I just keep dancing around it I'm going to get there but I want to set the table Therefore, be imitators of God. Be imitators of God as beloved children. This means that we are to live in God's character as believers. We have His likeness. That's our new self. But if we don't live in His likeness, if we don't imitate Him, then our lives externally will not reflect Him at all. We will be like those fools who light a candle and stick it under a basket. The light's inside. It's just not evident to the whole world or to the, all those in the house. Right? So, not only are we in God's likeness as new believers, but we also are to live actively in that likeness. We're to imitate God like children. I catch my kids doing that sometimes, you know. Now, don't take that as disrespect, dads. When you're outside and your son's acting like you, he's standing like you, he's trying to talk like you, he's trying to work like you work, don't ever rebuke him. Send him away for that. Be proud. He's doing what this verse says. He's imitating his daddy like a child. That's what we're to do. Christ is in us, and so therefore, we're to imitate his daddy and our daddy. Be like God in our care. Isn't that a beautiful passage? Isn't it a beautiful promise that that's not you whipping up effort to do that? God is going to do that through His Son. Because, third point under this first main point is we are saved by grace and sanctified by grace. We are saved and sanctified by grace. We don't have in ourselves the ability to pull this off. If you leave this sermon today and you go out and you say, I'm going to be like God, guess what? There's no easy button. You know the commercial? The easy button? God didn't give you one of those. You can't do it, can you? Let's all admit it. We're sinners. We can't do this. It's impossible in our strength. But we can do it. Not in our strength, but in God's grace. There is no excuse for sin. 
We can't go to God and say, well, I can't help it, God. He doesn't listen to that. Why? Because look at verse 24. Put on the new self and crea- that is created after the likeness of God and in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Well, the key is in the last part of verse 1, isn't it? Be imitators of God. Sounds like a hard task. And it is if you're doing it in your strength. It's impossible. But what are you? A child of God. Be imitators of God as a child of God. How did we become a child of God? How did you do it? God saved you by grace, didn't He? He saved you by grace. Did you do anything to earn salvation? No. And you can't do anything in your own strength to imitate God. That all comes from being a child of God through the grace of God. You look at me like you don't believe me. Look at verse 32. The key to understanding this grace is in verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. You can't be tenderhearted and forgiving one another in your own strength, but the fact that God graced you and saved you in Christ means you can imitate Him in that grace. We are saved by grace. We are to live in grace. Sanctification comes by grace. God's people in God's image. God's people in God's kingdom. Now we get to the verses in the middle. We're given five positive statements to live by in God's kingdom. Five positive statements in verses 25 through 32. Mark these or listen to these. Let each one of you, these are the positives, speak the truth with his neighbor. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Verse 28, let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Verse 29, but only such as is good for the building up. Things coming out of your mouth should only be good and building others up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Fifth, verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. These are five positive statements that we are to live by in the kingdom of God, and these are not randomly selected. You say, well, why didn't he talk about adultery? Or why didn't he talk about some other sin? Why did he choose these sins? Because that which is in the heart comes out through the mouth. It's not random selection. Paul focuses on your mouth and your conversation in this passage mainly because he believes the Bible when it says whatever is in the mouth whatever is in the heart proceeds out of the mouth why does he say why does he focus on speaking the truth not sinning in our anger which usually starts through the mouth 
Why is he focused on saying good things that build others up? Why is he talking about being kind to one another? Usually that's a mouthpiece. That starts in the mouth. You may do things with your hands that are kind, but it generally starts here. Why is he so focused on what we say? And you're going to see in chapter 5, he even goes back to this list, and he talks about it again, this repetitive nature of this text is amazing. He keeps going back to our mouths. James chapter 3 goes to the mouth. A lot of Jesus' moral teaching starts with the mouth. Why? Because the heart is exposed through the gate of the mouth. Why are we not to have corrupting talk come out of our mouth? Because we ought not have a corrupted heart. Why are we not to let our anger boil out of our mouth? Because our nature should not be angry. Why should we speak kind words to build others up? Because that should be our heart. That's who we are. We're edifying people. We love one another. We build each other up. So he focuses in on these five positive statements. Look at each of them. Speak the truth with your neighbor. Your wife, men. Your husband, women. They're your neighbor. In biblical terms, if they're not your neighbor, you don't have a neighbor. And yet it's in our marriages where we tell lies. We hide the truth. Well, there's just little things, Pastor. It's just a little thing, Carlton. It's not a big thing. Yeah, but if you're lying to your wife or your husband, who else are you lying to? Are you honest with anybody? I mean, this person is supposed to love you more than anybody on the earth. And you can't be honest? I'm not going to tell any more lies. Sure you will if your heart is still a lying heart. You can't stop what's in the heart from coming out of the mouth. That's what's wrong with lying. Tell the truth. Tell the truth. Then he talks about anger. Be angry and do not sin. Well, preacher, you just don't know what I have to live with every day. I mean, if you had to live with the woman I live with and the boss I live with and the disrespectful children I live with, you'd understand. No excuse. No excuse. Why? Because of our nature. Jesus was a man who was reviled and did not return in reviling. He was a man who was mocked, and he did not return the favor. He was a man who was beaten and abused and took it without one word like a sheep led to the slaughter. And now he, according to verse 24, is in us. And we are his children walking and imitating him. You see why these can't be try harder verses? Do you see why you can't take these as your aim in life through your strength to accomplish? You will fail. You can't do it. I can't do it. Be angry and do not sin. That's a questionable verse. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I'll wrestle with it a long time. Say, well, what's so hard about it? Well, there seems to be a righteous anger in the Bible. What is righteous anger? Is it righteous anger when my child disrespects me and I explode? 
and discipline them out of anger? Is that righteous? No. Well, but they were unrighteous. They provoked me. That's not at all what, unright- what righteous anger is. Righteous anger, if you want to know biblical definition, righteous anger is when you take up an offense against those who have an offense against God. The only category for righteous anger is that which comes out against those who are attacking God and His character. And even then, we are to be angry and not sin. There's no exception for anger except that someone is attacking and maligning the character of the living God. At that point, it's right to be angry, and yet we still should not sin. If you're angry because they are against your character, then you're sinning in your anger. You don't even have the right to be angry if they lie about you, if they revile you. You have no right to be angry. Matter of fact, Peter says, take that in consideration as a joyful thing. For so they did the prophets of old. So they did Jesus, who is your Lord. If they persecute you for that, that's a good thing. You shouldn't be angry at them. The only exception to anger is when someone is attacking God, His gospel, Jesus Christ, in that category. Every other type of anger is a sin. So the only, sin, or the only anger that's not sin is that which is caused because someone is rising against God, and yet then we're not to sin. Our anger doesn't boil over in us acting in anger, but rather, look what it, we are to do. We're to deal with that anger Be angry and do not sin. We're to deal with that anger immediately. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Why? Because even righteous anger gets perverted over time. Someone's lying about God. Someone's mocking God. Someone's cursing the gospel of Jesus Christ. You should go deal with them immediately. Do it in a spirit controlled by the Holy Spirit so that you do not sin. If you let the sun go down on it, you've given an occasion for Satan. So you can't, you, I never have the right to be angry at my wife except that she curses God. Does that change your perspective? Some of you have been sleeping on the couch, literally or figuratively, for years. And you think you've got just cause. If you just knew what he did to me, you know why I sleep on the couch. Why I figuratively sleep on the couch. And Paul says, in God's kingdom, there's no place for your anger. You say, well, if you just knew what I put up with every day from my wife, you'd know why I'm angry. While I might understand your anger, I cannot justify it or mine. Because in God's kingdom, there's no place for it. There's no excuse. I think about John and Mary who married for 25 years, four children, two off to college and two almost there. They're sleeping in the same bedroom on opposite sides of the bed to keep up the good front. They're seething in their anger. They would sit with you today, if they were here, they would sit with you and they would 
defend their love for Jesus at the same time defending their right to be mad at their wife or their husband. What Paul is saying is you don't love Christ because what's in the heart has proceeded through the mouth, has proceeded through your anger. You're not a child of God. Not because you sinned, but because His image is not coming out of you. We can't justify our anger. We can't defend ourselves. We must repent. Call on God. Don't steal. The negative statement is don't steal. The positive is work hard. So you got plenty left over. So you can have grace towards those. Give to those who are in need. Share with everyone. The thief who steals, steals because in his heart he believes he has a right to things. We live in a country that's stealing right now. We promote a culture of thievery in our world because we are teaching our children they have a right. It's called the American dream. When they're 28 and they haven't reached or achieved that American dream of a lot of good things, the white picket fence, the two-story house, the dog, two and a half children, and a beautiful wife, when they haven't reached that, they begin to steal from others. Some of them steal physically, and others just steal in their hearts. Paul says, don't be a thief. Rather, because you know you have no rights to anything, you work hard. You work hard. You receive what is given, and you're a gracious giver. That's how the kingdom of God works. God never promised you the two-story house, the picket fence, the beautiful wife, the athletic husband. God isn't promised these things to you. Don't be disappointed. Work hard. Only those who are in God can understand this. Work hard. Take what's given to you for your work and then be a giver. Don't let corrupting talk come out of your mouth. But only say things that build others up and fit the occasion so that grace is given to the hearer. Now, corrupting talk, unfortunately, in our day is often boiled down to cursing, saying four-letter words. While that may be the case, I, that's not at all what Paul means here. What Paul's talking about is much graver. These are words which kill. In the Bible, words have power over death and over life. And what Paul's talking about, corrupting talk, tears down in a situation. You may never use a curse word at your wife, and yet the fact, men, that you berate her and belittle her and demean her, you are tearing her down. And those words have no place in your heart. That's what Paul says. Rather, speak words that build up. Truth in love is another way it's put. Speak the truth in love. Some of you need to speak the truth, and some of you need to do it in love. It's a two-sided coin. All of our words should build others up. Finally, he implores us to be kind to one another. 
tenderhearted and forgiving one another as God has forgiven us. Now as we go to the final stage here, we look at the last point of the sermon. I want us to focus in on, again, the, the point here. The point is not your work, but rather what God has done for you in Christ. So as we look at this passage and we close, we see God's people living in God's image and God's people living in God's kingdom. Finally, we see in our last point that that's done by God's grace. By God's grace. Look what it says. God's people living in God's kingdom by God's grace. So it's a fragrant offering. Verse 2 of chapter 5. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The summation of the sermon is that because we are the children of God, living in the grace of God, we walk in love. We live in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us. The grace of God is exhibited to us through Christ and displayed by us in love towards one another. And in the end, that becomes a fragrant offering to God. So it leaves me with a very practical question as we close. Is your life a sacrifice? Is it a fragrant offering to God? I can't answer that question for you. But as I last week thought about that in my own life, I just opened up, be honest with you. What I found was that my life, my life doesn't always match the image of God. I fall short. And I was almost defeated. Really, on Thursday, I was, felt about as low as I could feel. As I thought through these moral statements of Paul, said in this setting of the grace of God, and I still, in my heart, was thinking, I don't live up. I don't live up. I don't always speak the truth. I don't always build people up with my words. I get angry and sin, and I get angry unrighteously, and that's a sin. I fail. I fail. I fail. I fail. All five. I was defeated. I'm sitting at my desk on Thursday, and I'm just... Remember, I've been studying all for this passage for some time and I understand this is the grace of God this passage is all about the grace of God and yet in my heart I'm judging myself and I fail and I'm, and I'm defeated I'm ready to give up I don't measure up and then I went to verse 2 and that overwhelmed me why? because it, look at what it says Love one another. Walk in love as what? As what? As Christ has loved you. Well, how did he love me? 
He gave himself as a sacrifice for me. Are you a living sacrifice to God? Is your life an aroma, a pleasing aroma before the nostrils of God? If the answer is no, the answer is Christ. I'm not telling you to go live better. I'm telling you Christ lived better. I'm not telling you to take your guilt and turn it and say, well, now I'm going to live better. I'm saying Christ has done enough. Walk in love. As Christ loved you and gave Himself up for you, so your life should be a living sacrifice, a pleasing aroma before God. It's not about living better. It's about knowing the One who is better. So I'm sitting there, a man who has studied and studied and grasped and tried to grasp the glory and the beauty of God in Christ displayed on the cross and His grace. This is what I believe with all my heart, every fiber in me. And yet I get to the end of the passage and I'm defeated. So you may get to the end of the sermon, you feel defeated. And I want you to, to answer this question. Is my life a pleasing sacrifice before the Lord? Let me ask you this way. Are you in Christ? That's really the question, isn't it? Are you in Christ? Do you know Him? Is He your righteousness? Or do you not know Him? And you're still living in your righteousness. See, what was happening to me at the desk was I was looking at this as a checklist. And even me, okay, so if you do it, don't, don't, I'm saying, I do it too. I'm looking at this and say, I'm not always honest. A lot of the time, but not all the time. I'm not always without anger. I'm not always, I, I, I fail. That's not what the point of the passage is. Grab hold of the robe of the Jew whom God is with. You're defeated this morning. You're sitting here and you don't have any hope because you know you don't match the grab hold of the robe of the Jew whose God is with Jesus. One story came to mind. The Lord Jesus was walking through the crowd one, one day. The crowd was pressing in from all sides. He stops and asks an amazing question. What did he ask? Who touched me? He's in a crowd. They're shoulder to shoulder. They're pressing in from all sides, the scripture says. And he asked, Who touched me? His disciples said, It's a crazy question, Lord. <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a lot of people here, and a lot of them are touching you. That wasn't what he was asking. The Lord was thinking about Zechariah chapter 8. Who has grabbed the hem of the robe of this Jew? And it was a little lady 
worthless in their society who had an issue of blood that she couldn't cure. She had a physical disease that she couldn't fix and nobody else could either. What was the solution? Grab hold of Christ in faith and you receive the love of God, the forgiveness of God, the salvation of God. She took it literally, didn't she? She grabbed hold of him. He's saying the same thing to you, Grace Fellowship. People are pressing in from all sides, and he's looking for the one that grabs hold of his robe in faith, saying, I don't live up. I don't measure up. I don't get it. But I want you. In that moment, he forgives you. He saves you. And he gives you true righteousness and holiness that is a loving and living sacrifice in the presence of God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Ten from every tribe and every nation shall grab Him and be saved. Let's pray.